This is part two of my sermon. For those of you that weren't here last week, it was way too long for me to go over. So we're going to just give you the highlights. And if you want to go back, I believe all of our sermons are on a podcast and they are on Facebook. But basically, we talked about last week that Jesus knows. Whoop, he knows my microphone just fell. Okay, Jesus knows. And, and more specifically, Jesus knows everything because Jesus is God. He's the firstborn over all of creation. He was there hovering over the waters while the world was being created and empty. He knows everything. He is our creator and our sustainer. And one of the things that Jesus knows the most is that we are a self-sufficient people. And that was the focus of his issue with the Laodicean church. And we read from Revelation 3, starting in verse 14, and went through 18. And, and basically, you can sum up that passage with Jesus interacting with this church, talking to them, challenging them on the idea that they were a very self sufficient people. And the scripture was very rich with, with illustrations from the time of the lukewarm water and spitting out of your mouth. And it was this really rich time in the word. And um, God is so good the way he, he writes the words to us that we can read in the Bible. But the reality is these aren't just random words that were written down. These are specific words written to a specific people. And when you understand what was happening in the culture of the people that the Bible was written to, you can understand why Jesus said what he said and what it would have meant to them. And then you can come to us today and say, okay, what does that mean for us today now that we rightly, fully understand what was written? So that was the first message. That was Jesus knows. And um, Jesus uses very, very strong words in the passage that we are going to, to, he uses strong words in last week's text too, but he used strong words and um, he knows us better than we even know ourselves. So he knows that sometimes he needs to use a little bit stronger language and, and, and imagery because he has to break through our calloused hearts. And sometimes that gets, that is, uh, that requires a little more, a little more strength, a little more um, boldness, right? So um, <clears throat> we are very similar to the Laodicean church. We are a very self-sufficient people. We live in a world where radio, television, and social media shows, show hosts, are professional provokers. The more sensational that they are, the more ratings they get and the more money they make. We live in a world where sports heroes cuss out officials in front of live audiences. And this is accepted. We live in a world where news broadcasts are filled with stories of public disrespect and defamation of law enforcement, and government officials. We live in a world <clears throat> where many parents speak out of anger towards their children and frustration is the foundation in their speaking to their children. 
We live in a world that's socially and politically charged. That's trying to make things better, but in reality, it's just making things worse. More division comes and things don't get better. We cannot fix this world that I just described on our own. We can't do things in our own power and expect it to make a difference. But there's good news, isn't there? God can. Jesus can make a difference. Jesus loves self-sufficient people just like you, just like me, and just like the Laodiceans. But he loves us enough to call us out on the carpet and say, you're being self-sufficient. It's not going to work. You need to turn and follow me. You need to open yourself to me. When Jesus speaks harshly, it's not for ratings. It's out of his deep love for us. That is why he spoke harshly. Let's turn to Revelation 3, 19 through 22 this morning. Pick up where we stopped. By the way, we, you can see the elements of communion there. I don't want to keep you waiting. We are going to do communion this morning. We are going to do it after the sermon, though. So, Revelation chapter 3. Verses 19 and 20. The word of the Lord says this. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him. And he with me. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that these words that we are discussing this morning are more than just ink on a page. They're powerful. They're effective. And they were penned and spoke in love. Love for your church. Love for your creation. And God, it is the mark of a believer when we can be spoke to and reproved and reprimanded and stay humble and listen. And so this morning, I pray for the believers that are here. I pray that they would be open and listening and humble themselves. And, and for, if there's anyone here this morning, God, that doesn't know you, that doesn't know the still small voice that speaks I pray that you would speak to them and move because we know the promises that you speak to the church at Laodicea are for believers. They're for your church, Lord. They're the activity that you do with your children. And so I pray that your children will be edified and blessed this morning. And I pray that someone would become a child of God this morning, understanding your love for them that we read in scripture, Lord Jesus, in your name, amen. All right, so Jesus loves us enough 
to discipline us. That's our first point this morning. It's an interesting thing, the discipline of the Lord. Has anybody, has anybody ever had a parent tell them that right in the middle when they have the spanking spoon in their hand, they say, this is going to hurt me a lot more than it's going to hurt you, right? And you're like, whatever. Uh, yeah, that's the concept, right? That's the, the concept. Um, a loving parent does not take joy in disciplining their child. It's difficult. It's hard. But we do it, don't we? Because what happens when we don't discipline our children? It gets worse. It goes, it goes, you think it's bad for whatever you're dealing with. If you had no discipline, it goes worse. It goes crazy. So that because you love them, you discipline them. So Jesus says, those I love, okay, he starts out with that. So know that Jesus loves us enough to discipline us. All disciples of Christ are in training, constantly training. Both of the words in this passage, reprove and rebuke, both of those words have the, the, the foundation and the concept of training and instruction in mind. So, so to rebuke or to reprove is to convince or convict, okay? So, so those are the words, to convince or to convict, depending on the translation that you read. Those are the words, but those words are in the context of what? Training and instructing. So, so Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, tells us things to convince us of our sin or to convict us of our sin when we're in this training as believers. And what's really interesting is uh, if you look in John 16, verse 8. Look, turn in your Bibles to John 16, verse 8. Remember, the Bible is not just one book here and one book here and, and random thoughts here and random thoughts here. It's all connected. The concepts are flowing throughout. So John 16, 8. I'm talking and not turning here. I think it's on this. If you don't have a Bible, I believe... It is going to be up on the screen behind me. And if you would like a Bible, um, Dustin back there has a stack of Bibles. If you would like to turn uh, in, in your Bible and look at this, that would be great. He's got some back there. Just maybe slip your hand up and he will deliver it to you with a smile. So John, what did I say? John 16 verse 8. Any takers? I didn't see anybody raise your hand. So, okay, you're probably shy. All right, 16 verse 8. That's right. It's up there. Up there behind me, right? Okay, good. All right. So six, John 16, verse 8 says this. And when he comes, meaning the Holy Spirit, Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit, he will come, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. The role of the Holy Spirit is to reprove us is to rebuke us, is to convict us of sin because we're in training, because Jesus loves us. He's got the Holy Spirit and that is the jo- one of the many jobs of the Holy Spirit to convict us of sin. It's the same word in the Greek right there 
that is used to convince and to convict the role of the Holy Spirit. So if you are filled with the Holy Spirit, which comes upon salvation when we repent of our sins, we are filled with the Holy Spirit. If that has happened, then you should be very familiar with conviction because we sin constantly. Amen? It's a constant thing. If you are riddled with guilt, maybe it's because you believe in Jesus and you have the Holy Spirit and he's telling you, stop messing up. The conviction is a familiar part of the Christian believer who is in training. So you should be familiar with it. That's, that's a good thing. That means God's working and he's active and he's involved in your life. But I want to break this down a little bit for you because sometimes we use these churchy words and we don't really talk about what does that look like? What is that, what is that experience? So the conviction of the Holy Spirit is that thought that comes to your mind when you're considering sin. It's just that little thought that comes to your mind that's like, do you really think that that's a good idea? You really think that's the best thing that you could do? Is that the best way you could spend your time? Is that the best way you could spend your money? Is that the best way you can honor your spouse? It's that, th- that thought. That's the Holy Spirit convincing, convicting you. Conviction is when you're listening to a song or watching a movie or reading scripture And the person that you're reading about or watching is dealing with the exact same sin issue that you are dealing with. That's not a coincidence, people. That's the Holy Spirit moving, using a Hollywood movie, using scripture. It could be, you could be reading about David and Bathsheba and dealing with, uh, you know, adultery. It could be that too, but it could be, it could be a song on the radio, that all of a sudden is the exact thing that's been plaguing your mind that you're thinking about. That's the conviction of the Holy Spirit. I read this week this quote, and I can't remember where I wrote it down from, so I'm admitting that it's a quote. I'm not taking credit for it. It says that God's reproof is just proof of his love for us. God's reproof is just proof of his love for us. You know, sometimes words are not enough, though, unfortunately. When we miss, or worse yet, ignore God's reproof, his conviction, and his convincing, then God starts to take action. He progressively moves because he's going to get our attention. He loves us enough to not let us just flail. He loves us. He's not going to ignore us. And that's where the word discipline or chastise comes in. So reproof or rebuking has the idea of talking, convincing, or convicting. It's, it's It's a discussion kind of relationship. Discipline and chastise is to instruct or to train, okay? So um, he says uh, that I love, those I love, I rebuke, 
and I reprove and I discipline them. Let's see, let's go back to the Revelation 3 there. I'll get there. Okay, so behold, uh, let's see. Those I love, I reprove, okay, and, and discipline. Okay, moving on to discipline. I have multiple translations that I read just in case you're reading a different translation and you see a, a different word. You got to admit, isn't that frustrating sometimes when the pastor is building his sermon on a word that's not in your Bible? Okay, so we're reading out of the English Standard Version. Um, but discipline or chastise, your Bible might say chastise, same concept, same word. Instruction and training, same concept of the rebuke. It's for training, it's for instruction, but God brings things on us or allows things to happen to us to teach us a lesson. So he, the, the word for chastise or discipline is also in other places to smite or to strike. So we're, we're seeing Again, in the context of training, smite. God smites us. God strikes us. He brings things in our life or he allows things to happen in our life because of his love for us. Here's another quote that I came across this week that was very interesting to me. In the divine chastening, the sinner at one and the same time winces under the rod and learns righteousness at the same time. I'm going to read that again. In the divine chastening, the sinner at one and the same time winces under the rod and learns righteousness. We know as parents, the Bible says to spare the rod is to spoil the child. So God acts, God moves, God disciplines us. And whether the conviction of the Holy Spirit or the hammer of the Lord, the goal is repentance. Hopefully, we listen when God is that still small voice saying, don't do that, don't do that. When God's trying to convince us, don't do that. It's really bad. Convicting us. It's sin. But then sometimes the hammer comes. But the ultimate goal is not just to punish us. The ultimate goal is so that we repent so that we can have a right relationship with a loving God who offers fellowship to us and communion. So the second thing this morning is that Jesus' love leads us to repentance. Jesus' love leads us to repentance. This is another word that we're very familiar with in church life, but that I wonder if we don't really develop a whole lot. And I think, based upon God's word, we're going to get a little bit of direction this morning on that. But in verse 20, he says... Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him 
and he with me. So we're moving from the reproof of God and to be zealous about your, and we're moving from the reproof of God, so be zealous and repent. And what's interesting about the, the, the word zealous, to go back to last week, the idea of zealous is to burn hot. So remember last week we talked about the worthlessness of lukewarm water. It's neither cold nor hot, and it's going to be spit out of his mouth. So when Jesus says, he doesn't just say, so repent, because I reprove those that I love. He says, be zealous and repent. He's saying, don't be lukewarm and self-sufficient. Zealously repent. Passionately repent. Mean your repentance. Give me your full repentance. Isn't that awesome? It's so, this, God's word is so, so good. That word zealous. But let's talk about repentance here for a second here, okay? So repentance is a change of attitude and action from sin towards obedience to God. So there's a couple things going on here. So a change of attitude, the way you think, and action, what you do, okay? So it's thinking and action, okay? And turning away from the sinful thoughts and the sinful actions and turning towards obedience to God. So it's not, I'm sorry. Is your child repentant when they say, sorry, mom? No, they're sorry they got caught. That's not repentance, okay? So let's talk about what that repentance would look like. And we're gonna use the rest of this scripture, Jesus being there. And um, what, is so, what is so amazing and, and wonderful about Jesus is that it's so simple. He loves us. When we are in the middle of discipline, when we are in the middle of the reproof of God, he's still right there. When, when we feel so distant and so guilty and, and shame is filled our life, God hasn't gone anywhere He's right there. He, he is standing there. He is in the middle. He is in charge of the reproof. He is actively doing the discipline in the life of a believer. He's right there in the middle of your discipline and reproof. And when we finally get our eyes off of ourselves, we see that Jesus has been standing there the whole entire time. So he says, behold. And behold just means look. Just look. Jesus, uh, John the Baptist says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Look, he's right there. And sometimes Jesus is like, look, I'm right here. I'm right here. Stop doing that. Stop doing that. And then sometimes he's just patiently waiting there, waiting for us to turn away from ourselves, and he's like, look, I haven't gone anywhere. I'm, I'm right here. Behold, 
Look, I stand. He doesn't say I'm running. He's standing there. He's, 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 he's there. He's there. He's with us because he loves us. So let's put some feet to this. A repentant person admits that they have shut Jesus out of their life and lets him back in. It's two things. Admits that they've shut Jesus out of their life. That's the words part. And then lets him back in. That's the action of turning back towards him and opening yourself to him. A repentant person admits that they have shut Jesus out of their life and lets him back in. Jesus is on the other side of the door. I stand at the door and knock. We have shut him out. He was there. We shut him out. When once Jesus gets your attention by knocking, hopefully by whispering, we don't have to get to the point of his loving action and discipline. Hopefully, when he gets our attention, we need to respond to Jesus' knocking. We need to respond to his voice. It says, he who hears my voice. So it doesn't say it in the text, but it's implied that Jesus is speaking. So he hears my voice. So we have hearing and we have knocking. But we need to respond, right? We respond to Jesus. But Someone could be knocking at your front door and you have the choice to completely ignore it, don't you? Completely ignore it. If you're honest, have you ever ignored the little teenager that you see walking down the street door to door peddling cookies? Have you, have you ever ignored that person? Or how about this? Do you turn off the lights and go to the back room because you're too cheap to feed trick-or-treaters? <laughs> I've been there. I've done that. And knocking at, knocking at the door for us. <laughs> or more, more importantly for this morning, do you hide from God knowing that discipline is on the menu? Take a second to think about that. Do you hide from God? Do you shut him out knowing that discipline is either coming or you're in the middle of it? So let's keep going on this illustration of the door and knocking because it's just, it just kind of took me by, I just was overwhelmed by this, just so relevant for us today. So let's say that someone is knocking at your front door and you're not trying to avoid them. You're not walking away from them, hiding in the back room. But you don't know who it is. You just heard the knock of the door. And you, you get up and you walk to the door. And what is it that you say if you don't know who the person is? Huh? Who is it? Who's there, right? You, you, say, you say, who is it? So if the person on the other side of the door says, it's me, then that's not really super helpful 
the words are not super helpful, but you can know who that person is, can't you? If they say, it's me. How would you know if, if how would you know who it is if someone says, it's me? By their voice. Would you know it if your oldest child said, it's me? Versus your dad? You would, know the, you would know those voices, right? You would know that. Who is it? If the person says, it's me, you have a relationship with that person. You have an intimacy with them. You have a connection with them. So when Jesus is standing at the door knocking, he's like, it's me. It's me. And if you know his voice, you hear his voice and you respond to his voice. Look what John 10, 27 says. John 10, 27 says, my sheep, this is Jesus speaking, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow that follow me, that's the repentance part. We can hear the voice of the Lord. We can know that he's disciplining us. But we have to follow him. And repentance is turning back towards him and away from our sin. And in the context of this passage, self-sufficiency that the Laodiceans were dealing with. And we turn back towards God, because we know the sound of his voice. Jesus is always speaking. Jesus is always standing there. Jesus is always knocking. And he's always waiting. Always. Through repentance, we're opening the door. We are allowing him in. We are reestablishing our relationship and we're beginning to fellowship with him once again. You ever notice the pattern of your life that when you are struggling with a sin that you start to distance yourself away from maybe your family members, then maybe the church, then maybe praying and reading the Bible at all? There's a distancing that happens and that just doesn't get fixed right away. We admit it and we have some repair work to do. There's some damage that has been done. There's some distance. There's some coldness. But we got to come back to church. We got to come back to our family members. We got to come back to the fellowship that strengthens us. Back to the relationships that breathe life into us. And the most important relationship is the still small voice of Jesus speaking to us. Those that he loves, he reproves. So we need to recognize that the discipline of the Lord is him actually loving us. His desire is to be intimate with us. He wants to be close to us. And so when he says that he wants to come, he says that he will come into us, <clears throat> Excuse me. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. 
Jesus uses this concept of banqueting, of, of eating together, of sharing a meal together a lot in Scripture. And, and what, what, the con- what the concept is, is, is that he wants to be with us. The concept of a meal, you, you break bread together, you are together. It doesn't matter what you're eating, you're eating it together. You're, you're together at the table. And the concept of a meal with Christ is incarnational relational intimacy. There are some big words for you, for those of you who want to go home and look at the dictionary. Incarnational relational ministry. Jesus was not just sitting up in heaven looking down at us writing these words. He came to us. We have the incarnation of Christ. He became man and came to us and died on the cross for us. He wants a relationship with us. He doesn't want to date us and be our boyfriend or our girlfriend, but he wants a relationship. Uh, I, I, I was talking to my wife, trying to figure out like what's the word that's not weird about a relationship with Jesus because he's not our girlfriend or our boyfriend. It's almost more along the idea of when you join an organization and you're a charter member of the organization or you have a fellowship or you have a brotherhood or a sisterhood. There's a, there's a, <clears throat> a bond that is there um, around common things that you are, have interest in. Jesus wants that with you. He wants to be with you. He wants to be near you. He wants a relationship with you and he wants to be intimate. He came to us to be close to us, to die for us. Because he knows that we can't get over our self-sufficiency on our own. We need the reproof. We need the rebuke. We need to be convinced. And unfortunately, because of our thick heads and our hard hearts, we need God to actually act on us. We need God to act upon our country. We need God to act upon our church. We, God needs to act upon your family to wake you up, to get you to come back, to realize you're not sitting with me in intimacy anymore. You're not fellowshipping with me. You've shut me out. But I'm sitting right here, knocking, speaking all the time. And one of the best illustrations of Jesus' love for us and the idea of this relationship is sitting right in front of us. It's such a reminder of, of how much Jesus loves us and how much of a relationship that he wants with us. And so we saved communion for the end because I thought it would be a great application for this message. So Ron um, Robinson, our elder, is going to come up and lead us in a time of communion this morning.